Welcome to Rants About Humanity, a podcast where we interview guest experts with passionate opinions about important topics that don't get enough attention. Raw, unfiltered, thought-provoking perspectives with no censorship. With your host, Philip Van Houta. Welcome everyone to the Rants About Humanity podcast. Today I have Brecht Arnard as a guest. Brecht Arnard is the editor-in-chief of Macrotrends.be, a Brussels-based financial newsletter, preparing its subscribers for the coming monetary reset. He's the author of several papers on the functioning of our financial system and the detrimental effects on the present monetary policy, and has a keen eye for how the mass media tries to divert attention from the underlying problems. And he has studied mass manipulation techniques for the last 15 years. A bit of a veteran in this area right now. Welcome on the podcast. Maybe we can start a bit about where did our current financial system originate? Well, that is a very broad question because uh, money has been around ever since people traded goods. And so the, the true origins of money come from a barter economy in which some goods were more liquid than other goods. So, for instance, the word salary comes from Latin uh, for salt, because people were being paid in salt. People have been paid in cattle. People have been paid in, in shells. But you could say that the real monetary system came about when people started lending money to each other. That is where you have a financial system, because finance means it comes etymologically comes from the French word fin, which means the end. So a financial system is a system that puts an end to debt. That is that is the, the origin of the financial system. That is the, the goal of the financial system to put an end to debt. And what we see now today is that this system needs debt to be able to continue. So my central thesis in, in a lot of debates, academic debates, is that this is not a financial system. This is actually, if you really, really think about it, a religious system. Mm. Because we believe, we believe that the money has value. And because we believe that the money has value, it has value. Until we don't believe that. And then the thing comes crashing down. So... In a nutshell, that is the short answer to your question. Yeah, this is also why you studied Austrian economics, which also takes a look at like time preference and psychology, because yes. what we see often in terms of like investing, it has to do with psychology, with risk assessment, you know, time preference things. So why is this not often being discussed, the psychological, maybe even the religious aspects of it, but it's sometimes just looked at supply and demand and that's it. Yeah. Well, we, we, we have a very heavy heritage in, in economics, which comes from the 19th century, in which positivism was the prevailing uh, philosophy. And although positivism has died in the First World War as a philosophy, we are now postmodern. Positivism is a, is a modernist philosophy. We are now postmodern. But that is only in the, in the highest regions of the intellectual debate and in, in the philosophical debates. Nobody believes in post positivism anymore. But in the sciences, which always come a bit behind, positivism is still ruling. So to make that clear, most economists, 99% of economists still believe that uh, one should govern the economy using a model. 
So what they do is they measure all kinds of um, figures, like the, the unemployment figure, the inflation figure, and then they construct relations between those figures. And then you get a nice model, and then you say to the government, well, if we want more uh, or less uh, unemployment, we have to have higher inflation. That is one example, which is called the Phillips curve. There's like this ideological blindness to see that the uh, economy is not a machine. It is an organism, and it is composed of many billions of microorganisms, and those microorganisms we call human beings. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so it's not because you inject, you know, the Phillips curve said, the Phillips idea said, if you inject money, then unemployment will go down because with this new money, entrepreneurs will start new businesses. And, uh, well, if you need new businesses, you need more people. So unemployment goes down. And that is actually true, but it is only true on a short notice, on a short time frame. Just as it is true that when you take drugs and you go out dancing, well, you can dance for eight hours. Well, uh, Philip, you are a very healthy guy, and, and I am too. So I think we could manage maybe four or five hours. But you know, sometimes you go dancing and you see people dance, you know, until mm -hmm. until twelve o'clock in the afternoon, and then, you know, how is this possible? Well, because of drugs. So inflation can be can be compared to drugs. You can you can provoke short term effects. But then, of course, the question is, is this sustainable? That is the real question about economics. Which kind of policy is sustainable in the long run? And the paradoxical answer to that is no policy at all. If you leave the market free, it will auto-regulate itself. And the very idea that you have to do something is positivist. A positivist is somebody who says, I am the scientist, this is reality, and my idea about reality has to be implemented in reality. And the real, really being humble in the social sciences is accepting that nature or, or reality or metaphysics or whatever you want to call it has its own self-regulating function. And that is why psychology is thrown overboard. Okay, there is behavioral psychology. They know that if we manipulate the masses in buying stocks, that everybody will buy stocks. But that is manipulation. That is not respecting how reality, how social reality actually functions. It's interesting what you say because I, I see a link between, I know you have your own opinion about the immune system, but let's just use it as an analogy that you have yes. your own body as a self-regulating system, but they're injecting vaccines and the same thing with the <laughs> money supply, they're injecting, you know, money like a junkie, as you said, you know, to... Yeah to try to force things in an artificial way or in a, in a way that doesn't serve the body of the sovereign citizens. Yeah, I, I, I have a past in politics, very short, two years. I was working in the, in the uh, federal parliament of Belgium, and so I, I maintained some contacts there. And, and some uh, MPs asked me, but Brecht, what would you do? And, and I say, well, the question is not what we should do. It, the question is what we shouldn't do. We shouldn't allow monopolies. We shouldn't raise taxes. We shouldn't inject, inject more money. And then they say, well, but that, that would mean the end of the system. And I said, yes, it would mean the end of the system, just like it would mean the end of slavery when the slaves uh, put down the fences, you know, when they, when they can leave the, the plantation. Yeah, but that you are so radical. I say, well, being radical is not wrong if the root, because radical comes from radix, which is root. If the root of your thinking is correct, 
And the big question is, why are we here? Are we here to be the slaves of a monetary system or are we here to be creative and contribute to a better society? What I don't understand, I often take a look at things at an individual level. They are able to do right now on a state level, on a central bank level, that you wouldn't be able to do on an individual level. If you don't have things to back up your money and you would want to buy a car, they say, sorry, your credit is not good enough. But if you do that on a state level or a central bank level, no problem at all. This whole myth of like magic money and then like the government is giving us like this money is just being printed out of thin air and you don't have to repay it back. Well, on an individual level, when you lend money to buy a house, (laughs) you're paying it back with interest. Like, where does this belief come from and why are people so disillusioned about this, delusional about this. Yeah, that's a very good question. And I have been asking myself that question for the last 15 years, and I think I have found an answer. It actually started in the year 1648. That is the year where the Treaty of Westphalia was signed. And that was a treaty between the Protestant countries and the Catholic countries. What had happened? They had an 80 years war and then another 30 years war at the same time. It was a very conflicting century, uh, the, the, the 17th century, and, and, and part of the 16th. And what was a key, a key insight that I, that I got there, that is uh, to be able to wage war for so long, all the kings of Europe had to uh, indebt themselves. They had to go to the, the, the Medici Bank and, and all the big, fam- the big bankers' families, mostly in Venice, to be able to to have funds to do the war. If there are historians interested in this, I think they would find, I have not found proof yet, that the, the, the Venice bankers actually lent money to both sides, which actually happens a lot in history. But that, that specific historical proof I have not found yet, but it doesn't even matter for the discussion. The point is that while waging war and amassing more debt, in the end, when the Treaty of Westphalia was signed, there was a little debt vehicle, that special purpose vehicle that was designed by the bankers, and it was called, uh, in French, les états de dette, so the state of the debt. So every time I hear the word state... The debt and the debt. <laughs> that's it. So the state was just a vehicle to manage the war debt, and so the king, which was the sovereign, became a subject of that vehicle. So the king was responsible to repay the debt to that vehicle. And what did he do? Well, he had to uh, impose more taxes that he never had to impose because he lent the money and he thought he could pay back the loan with the the spoils of the war of the other side, but that didn't happen. So uh, he, he started putting taxes on people. And then you get the democratic uh, reaction, of course, no taxation without representation. And most liberal people think liberal in the classical liberal sense. Mm-hmm. Wow, that is how we control the state because, you know, if they tax us, then we at least have representation. Well, that would be the same like a slave in a slave plantation that has to pick a bowl more cotton a day and say, well, I will pick up more cotton, but then I want to decide the food that we will get has to be a bit better. So you, you are still in, in the slave plantation system. And so what is the key here? The key is that the, there is no more sovereign sovereignty. Nobody has sovereignty, not even the politicians. They are all slaves. And why is that important? That is important because what you said earlier, that a sovereign person can never go against public morality. 
a sovereign person must be the example of public morality. So if you are uh, printing money in your garage, then the government actually, on a moral level, cannot say that you are doing anything wrong because they are doing it themselves. The king could do that because the king is not allowed to do that. He has to give the big example. And of course, kings have always inflated currencies in the modern times. And so egos, after, and e <laughs> yeah, and, and egos. So Jung speaks about inflation of the ego. And inflation is actually a, 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 an illness that is far wider than monetary, in, in a monetary sense. Inflation of ego, inflation of diplomas, everything is devaluing. And we can, we can sense that in our daily lives. Where maybe you can explain a bit also. I, I sometimes say that the government four years or six years is just lending money to act like they will solve the problems in four or six years. And then they kick the can down the road and then they start over again. So they just make all these promises. They get like loans from all the central banks, like, yeah, just do some stuff, make stuff happen and act like it will be permanent. And then they polarize on another team, another crisis. And then it's the same thing again four years later. Yeah, this has to do with time preference, of course, that Dr. Hans Hermann Hoppe has written a wonderful book about that. He says from an economical point of view, not even talking about politics, he says that monarchy is a lot better than democracy. Why? Because if you are a politician, your time frame is four or five years, mm -hmm. and then you have to be reelected. So you have to buy votes. And how do you do that? Buy public programs, whatever it is. And that is the internalization of the profits. You are elected again, but the costs of your behavior are externalized to the future. If a monarch does the same thing, well, he knows that uh, when his uh, kid grows up and is the next king, he will find the misery that you caused. So your time frame, your, your, your way of thinking is a lot, we, we call that in, in economics, has a lot lower time preference. And nowadays, everything is high time preference. Everything has to be now. Uh, like crime statistics, for instance, instead of having a thought, thought out policy that will yield a profit in maybe 10 years, no, no, no. Uh, we have to be able to say the next election cycle that crime has gone down. And what happens? Well, they take measures that make petty crime go down. And then you can, you, you can jang, dangle those, those figures, but organized crime goes up. And so if we would talk, profoundly about these things, we would have to talk for a month on all aspects of life. But time preference is, is, is a thing you can, you can use for anything. Yeah, you talked about no taxation without representation. Maybe we could talk about no election without responsibility or without being held accountable for what they do. This often doesn't happen. In a way, politicians is a very weird profession because you don't need a lot of expertise and experience. Everyone in their way is just a minister of propaganda of their department. <laughs> that's true. That's just true. And actually, if you think about it, uh, I always listen to the language. I think it was Hermann Hesse, but I'm not very sure right now. After the war, they asked him, and what did you do uh, during the war? And he said, I was a guard. And what did you guard? I guarded the language, he said. So uh, if, you, if you look at the language that is used, when does a politician take responsibility? When he is fired. When he is obliged to leave his position, he has taken his responsibility. Then they mm -hmm. say he has taken his responsibility <laughs> when he goes and leaves the mess behind. So it's a perverse way of thinking. And you call politics a profession. I would say that it is a, a calling for some people, but the best freedom fighters, let's say, 
cannot get on top in politics because the in incentives in politics are perverted. So good, integer people can never get on top. And that is why I, I no longer believe in politics. I, I've left that idea like 10 years ago, and I don't even go voting now because it's, it's useless. It's senseless. Yeah, maybe talk a bit about your own evolution. I know you were a big uh, fanboy of Ayn, Ayn Rand in the past, <laughs> and you know the Flemish cause and politics. What made yeah. you shift it, or how did you evolve during all these years? It was a very good experience for me to have been fired as a political collaborator in the, in the federal parliament of Belgium. And uh, out of respect for the people who I worked with, I cannot go into detail why, Mm -hmm. But let's say that it was not because I did a bad job. It was because I did a too good job, in my opinion. I was too, I wanted to guard the ideology. And then you see when something happens like that, that actually destroyed my, 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 my view on life. I, I, I wanted to be the, the first president of the Republic of Flanders, imagine. With a new vision. And many young people have that until they see that it is all discourse. There is no ideology. It's just uh, ideology is a story that legitimizes power. And people who are in, in politics, on average, are very, very, very unhappy people. I have never known anybody that had power that was happy. Why do they follow this ideology? Because it gives them an identity. And for me, the Flemish identity was very important because I lived in Belgium. And I think Belgium is one of the most dishonest countries in the world although it has a very good reputation in international institutions. Mm -hmm. But I always say that every country has its mob. Well, in Belgium, the mob has its own country. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, it's one of the, the worst countries. And, 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 if, and if you are a young person really believing in the good and in justice, and you are drawn to politics automatically. So I identified with this ideology until you start realizing that a lot of the things that go wrong in society are the consequence of the projections people make. Mm -hmm. And so to be fired from politics, I needed a year to re recalibrate, you know, to, to reorient my life. And then I understood the reason I, why I went to politics is because I thought that you could force other people to do good. And you can't. You can force them not to do bad, but that's not the same. It's a very broad subject, but yeah, no, it, it also reminds me. I will talk a bit later about this in the podcast that you know, when you project things, you project your own helplessness onto the state. And the more people yeah. are helpless and the less values people have, or ideology or religion people have, the more they put the values onto someone who tells them what to do, the caretaker, let's say. And that's becoming increasingly the state as a compensation for that inner helplessness, immaturity. Yeah and lack of values and meaning that people have in their personal life or their social life or family or community. Oh, I, I, I fully agree. And, and that is the, the lesson I, life has, has taught me. Back then, I thought my life was finished. I would never achieve my dream. And then and now, looking back, back at it, I now understand that the state as an institution is actually a state of mind. Where is power nowadays? Is power with, with, with politics? Is it with the media? With the unions? Where is it? And nobody can actually pinpoint it. And the reason nobody can pinpoint it is because it is not external anymore. It's in here. It's the ego that, that has been constructed that keeps us as a prisoner. If we would say collectively as a human race, tomorrow we no longer pay taxes, mm -hmm. 
then this whole charade would stop. But the reason we don't dare to do that is, first of all, because a lot of people would lose the income from the state, but that's not the only reason. Also, because it would confront us with our own responsibility. Mm-hmm. You know, now Daddy the State gives you this and gives you that. In the old days, when a, when a road had to be constructed, the neighbors would just come together and say, how much does this have to cost? You have a tractor, you have that. I'm not saying we have to go back to that am- level of amateurism, but I do say that a lot of problems that are now managed by the state could, could easily be managed by unions uh, of, of people on a certain problem. So we don't need the state. We don't need the politicians. We don't need them at all. But people think they need them because they actually need them psychologically. Yeah. One thing I want to test your vision about is like Ayn Rand, you had like libertarian. I know that you're also more libertarian in the past. But one thing that I often challenge libertarians at is that they think that just regulate everything by the free market. But what I see now with the so-called free market is I see power, money, influence accumulating at the top of the pyramid in a kind of corporate communism with these big kind of companies who are acting like a dictator and have more power than Stalin. So they just like, let the market take over capitalism, you know, like they just think capitalism will solve everything. But when we see now like media companies, social media companies, pharma companies, yes, they they use capitalism, but they also have a kind of what I call neo-feudalistic or corporate communistic structure. Yeah. I, I, I tend to call it a cryptocracy, and I know that the, the, the crypto fans will not like that, but crypto actually means hidden. Mm-hmm. And so these are hidden powers. That on the surface, they, they, you know, it's just Facebook or it's just Instagram, but behind that, there is an agenda, and that agenda is hidden. And so the duality that libertarians believe in between the state and the free market mm-hmm. or what is left of it is false, like all dualities are false. There are many people working in the state that are actually more liberty-loving than corporate you know, managers who actually hate independence by people. They love to have a client that is obliged to work with them, that cannot take his data with him, that is bound with hands and feet to their business model. That is what they like. So it's not a question about the state or the, the free market. It's a question about humanity, actually. What are we here? For? What is our function? What are we doing here? That is the real question for me. It also relates to what you said before. You said it's not only about what we should do, and I rephrase it a bit. It's also about what we should allow. Like, what do we want to allow? And where do we place the balance with risk-taking, adventure, that the negative sides of life? Like, you talked about polarities. That's also polarity, a dance between the polarities. But we can't just shelter ourselves from the dark and the shadows. It will, it will come back in a certain way. Oh. So right now, I would see the crisis right, being handled. It's like, oh, you know, focus on the positive, more money, we will solve it, etc. But, you know, a livable society also knows how to deal with death. Yeah. My, my granny always say, uh, uh, says a, a problem that has to be solved by money is not a real problem. If you throw good money after bad, how do you ever expect that the problem, which is too much debt, will actually be solved? It's like this catch-22 where we are in and nobody sees a way out. There is no way out. That is the whole point. The crash needs to come. You know, it's so hard to explain to people that it is a paradoxical point. You know, it's, it's not what we do. It's what we don't do. And you're, afraid, you're rephrasing what we allow. Do we, do we allow the state to rob us of more than 50% of our income? Do we allow that? 
do we think that this is humane? And my answer is no, because if you think about it, in the, in the slave plantations in the United States, let's say that the slaves there, they had their own cabin and they had some chickens and they had an egg or, or they could make a bread or whatever. Let's say that that is 10% liberty. You know, 90% you're a slave. And now in Belgium, for instance, I think it was the Uzo figures for, for 2018, the combined fiscal pressure on an individual that is not married. So you and I are not married mm-hmm. and that is uh, living off a wage. You and I are independent, so that is not applied to us, but to many people it is, many singles, was 58%. So my question, let's round that to 60%. So my question is, where on the continuum from 60% slavery to 90% slavery do you suddenly become a slave? Is it when you have this this cap on, uh, I'll go tell Miss Daisy, or, or yeah. you know, and m- my, my opinion is that it is not a question of of gradation. It's a question of principle. Do we live for the government or does the government live for us? So also classical liberals, taxes have to go down. My question is, do we even need taxes? Yeah, yeah. you, you have always, always, always start with the premises, right? The and premises. The premises is, you know, do you still beat your wife? <laughs> well, if you answer that question in the negative, then you have implicitly acknowledged that, that you have mm-hmm. beaten her in the past. So you really have to, this is why I love philosophy. I don't like science that much because uh, science has been detached from philosophy. If you're looking for a black cat in a room, that would be a scientific uh, question. Uh, you know, uh, how are we going to, to find a black cat in a dark room? But the philosophical question is, is there a cat in the first place? And that is what, what I miss in, in the debate that we have to, we don't debate conclusions anymore. We have to debate premises. Yeah, and you talked about the state, but I feel the state, when you look at big corporation, anything with big in front of it has a much bigger influence than just the state. You see a lot of the tension right now between globalists and nationalists or the sovereign individual. So I sometimes talk with people who are an advocate of capitalism and capitalism did great things, you know, poverty, etc. So I'm not demolishing capitalism. But when you take a look at how many people do you need in the room to have half of the money in the planet? I think right now it's like 21 or 22. That's a classroom. That's a classroom. Like if just four of those people would be together and say like, you take care of pharma, you take care of social media, you take care of the banks and then an extra person, they have so much power and influence. Yes, capitalism, they worked hard for it, but can you really give so much power, money and influence in the hands of so few people? And that's often why I go against them, just the unbridled market and whatever it's capitalism. You know, what is your stance towards this? Well, I think, uh, I think uh, you are wrong. <laughs> Sorry. I think you are, you are missing a point, and that is that this is not true capitalism. But then again, if you talk to Marxists, they will always say this is not true Marxism. So mm-hmm. I, I get that. But the point is that most amassment of capital has come along through state monopolies. So if you look at banks, for instance, the very fact that we have a central bank makes the whole banking sector a cartel. So you cannot enter into that market with a better service. It's impossible. Look at any sector that you try to get in. What is a free market? A free market is a, is a market where you, where you can enter freely. And, and that is impossible. So if anybody says that we live in a free market and that this would be capitalism, it all depends on how you define define capitalism. 
Marxists would define capitalism as crony capitalism, what libertarians call crony capitalism, which is not the real capitalism. But I, I don't even believe in the duality between capital and labor, because that is what another duality, you know. Uh, what is my biggest capital? Well, my my uh, talents, my intelligence, my my labor. So that that is all already something something very integrated, holistic. And then, when I have capital, what is my most important labor? Well, intellectual labor to maintain my capital. Because having capital, I could give a, a million to hundred people. Let's talk within one year, and let's see who has who has invested well and who has lost its money. That's also labor. You know, and, and people who work in a factory see the boss running around and talking, well, I can do that. You know, you can't because it's very difficult to communicate well. It's very difficult to plan. It's, it's a, another kind of labor. So even the idea that or capital or labor should rule is wrong, totally wrong. I started reading the, the classics of culture Marxism and Marxism, even like the Communist Manifesto, and I reinterpret Marxism now, not in terms of labor, but in terms of perception and attention. So yep. in old school Marxism, it's economic and it's extracting labor from the factory workers to suppress them, let's say. Now it's actually subtracting the attention and focus of the citizens to gain like more power. So I feel that it's a perceptual game, it's a psychological game, it's an attention game. While maybe so many years ago, it was more uh, an economic and a financial game. Do you feel if you really want to have the crux of that system, the crux of the power, where should you throw a stick in the wheels? Like what, what should you focus on? Well, that is the million dollar question, isn't it? <laughs> if, if It's a question about strategy. How, how do we, and actually it's a negative question. How do we break the system? basically, is what you are asking. And I think that the, the real question, and this is typical for academics, they rephrase mm -hmm. their question so that they don't have to answer it, but I think it's a le legitimate, legitimate in this case. We have to know first where we are going to. What do we want in a positive sense? Because, for instance, a lot of people say, well, people are never going to wake up. You, you can think that people are waking up, but that's only because you are waking up, because then you, you connect to people who are also waking up, and but the masses don't see that. You know, my conviction is different. I think the majority of people ha has already woken up to the fact that we are slaves, but there is a difference between waking up and getting out of bed. Mm -hmm. So you can wake up and you can ponder, what, what am I going to do? And as long as you don't know what you are going to do that day, you stay in bed. And this is the problem. A lot of people see that the present system doesn't work but they don't see the contours of a new system. Do we have to follow the Zuckerbergs of this world? Are we going to do a technocracy without limits? This is the real question. And, and my answer to that question, sorry for rephrasing your question, but I do think that is, is legitimate. Mm -hmm. My answer to that question is people want to feel that their contribution is meaningful. That when they go to work, that when, for instance, uh, somebody who, who swipes the streets and meets a businessman while swiping the streets, and they make eye contact, that they feel that they are working on the same project. And that, that is what keeps a society together. And so the question is not purely economical. The question is, even if we would be as rich as we want to be, what are we doing here? It's always the same question. And that is where the religious part comes in, 
And while studying the monetary system, I have become religious. I have come to believe in God because I suddenly realized that we are actually, you know, worshiping a God. And and it's a God that is not that much known by people, but the God is the mammon. So mammon in Hebrew means stacking, stacking up. So this is a nihilistic God that, you know, you feel ever more empty. The more money you have, the more money you want, because the emptiness becomes greater. It's, it's a diabolical system. And so what we need is a symbolical system. And in the preparations of this, this podcast, I said that one thing I, I wanted to mention was the similarities between mm-hmm. the monetary system of, of Jesus' time, without being dogmatic or anything, it's just it, these are facts, and the monetary system now. And so the monetary system in his time uh, existed of three illusions. First illusion, you are poor, your cattle dies, your wife is sick, and that is because God is mad at you. It's a punishment by God. Yeah. But you can buy off the wrath of God if you do a make make a a small sacrifice in the temple. Each year you, you save money and then you buy an oxen, if you have a lot of money. For your capital religion. sin. Yeah, 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 that's it. And so you, you go and offer, offer them. But, 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 you can only buy the offerings, the offering animals with temple money. Fast forward 2,000 years to today, 2,020 years, uh, people are irresponsible, and that is why we need a state. And you have to pay your taxes to the state. The first illusion is people are irresponsible, and that is why we need a state. But, 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 if you want to the state not to punish you, well, then you pay your taxes like a good citizen. But, 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 you cannot pay your taxes in any money you want. No, you have to pay it in money by the central bank, fiat money. And so it's no coincidence at all that the first bankers were the Templars. This is the connection, the occult connection between the temple system in Jesus' time and our monetary system in our time. We are also slaves, just like the Judeans were slaves. They worked until August to be able to, like the, the, the exchange rate between the shekel in the country and the shekel in the temple was one to 60. So imagine, so you are working for six months and then what you have earned in six months, you actually have worth one month in the temple to buy your, your stupid pigeon. And then you think that, you know, and, and what is the consequence of that? And then I'll, I'll shut up. The consequence of that is that you do not build capital buffers. So the, the, the smallest problem, like, for instance, uh, you, you don't have enough water. You, don't, you cannot even buy the buckets to go and get water from a nearby river. So what happens? You get poorer. And when you have a high priest cost saying that, you know, it's your fault because God is punishing you, what will you do? Well, next year you will try to make a bigger offer. And that is what Jesus saw. And to my knowledge, I have read the Bible back and forth. He only used violence once when he cleared out the money changes from the temple. Well, that is exactly what we should do right now. Clear the J.P. Morgans and the the Bear Stearns and, and whatever out of the monetary system and leave it free. Just abolish all central banks. We will have a massive crisis. But just look at the Asian countries. They had a massive crisis in in the year 97, and all the biggest brands of today, like Samsung and all, all the technology, has come from the period after that when everything recalibrates and everything becomes efficient again. 
What is true about that the financial system was created by certain uh, Jewish people because they were allowed to ask uh, interest on it, and that was a sin for like Catholics. You even had like court Jews for kings who handled their finances because that is how they amassed fortunes because it was forbidden to ask interest on the money that they lent to people. Well, the Catholic Church has always equated asking interest with usury. Mm -hmm. So usury nowadays is equated with asking too high of an interest. No, the Catholic Church has said any interest is usury. And I think they were wrong in that. Because if I lend my capital to you so that you can do something productive, well, why, why would I ever do that if, if there's nothing in that for me? Mm-hmm. So that is just like if you would rent a car, well, I lend you my capital. So there is no economical reason why that sh- couldn't happen. Or you back it up with something real, which I think in the Islamic system like happened, that it has to be backed up by something like real and not just trust and believe that it will be paid back in the future. Well, that is the role of gold, of course, that whenever you make a loan to somebody, you want a collateral, you want an, an assurance that if the person cannot pay back the loan, that you can at least get the object of that loan. Mm-hmm. That, 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 that is just the basis of, of, of banking. So no banker would give you a loan if you, if, if you have nothing to, to as collateral. You have some people, when we talk about conspiracy theories, that you know the current financial ah. system, the current central bank system, that it's been decreated by certain Jewish people, maybe partly because of the fact that they could only charge interest on yeah. the money that they were lending. So they amassed wealth and maybe in some countries they couldn't own property. So then they just gained wealth yeah. through the financial system. Yeah, I think that is partly true, but let's not forget for, forget the traditional hypocrisy of, of all religions in Catholicism. Officially, you could not uh, ask uh, interest, but in the contracts, what was the solution then? Well, you, you borrow a thousand denarii for one year, and if you are too late, I'm going to put a fine on that of 200 denarii. So that was, and people paid one day too late. Oh, now I have to pay the fine, which was 200, so that's 2%. Mm-hmm. You know, so it, it has always existed, but it is true that the Jewish community has always been very engaged in uh, trading money. And so when it comes to conspiracy, I think you have to distinguish if we would say that the Jews are trying to rule the world, mm-hmm. you would be gravely mistaken because there are many Jews that live in poverty and have nothing to do with a certain kind of uh, Judaism, which is actually not Judaism anymore, and that is Zionism. And so when you look at Zionism, this is a whole different topic, of course. Most people believe that this is the conviction that the Jewish people should have their own state. So that that is a kind of secular nationalism. But it is actually far more than that. It is actually the idea that only Jews are people. Mm-hmm. And everybody can, you know, lambast me for what I'm going to say now, but this is just in their holy book, which is the Talmud. Only Jews are people, and all non-Jews are goyim. And goyim means cattle. So from their perspective, which is probably 0.0002% of all Jews, they want to rule the world because they think that it is God-given. They are the, the chosen ones. While the real meaning of Israel is one of the most beautiful stories I know, and which is actually proto-Christianity, and that is the story of how Jacob 
fooled his brother, Esau. And if you allow me, I will shortly touch on that because it's such a beautiful story. And Jacob was the younger uh, brother. And of course, he would not inherit the, the sheep uh, of his father, which was uh, Isaac. And, but he, he was the, the, the most loved one by his, by his mother. And so uh, she devised the plan so that Jacob would get the inheritance and not Esau. And, and Esau was the hairy one. This is literally the translation. Esau is the hairy one. And so the mothers, and, and so Jacob said, but my father will see that I'm not Esau. And her mother said, nah, he's blind. Just put a sheep's cloth, uh, sheep's um, uh, skin on your uh, on your chest, and when he touches you, when he gives you the blessing, and in you know in ancient times, giving the blessing even to a person that is wrongly identified, the blessing is something magical, and it's it, it went to Jacob, and then of course Esau comes back after having been deceived by by his mother because he he loved a, a bowl of soup of uh, lentils, the lentil soups, and that is still the saying you. Uh, giving her heritage away for a, a bowl of lentils. Uh, of course, he discovered the, 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 the fraud. But now, the most interesting part is, is the psychology of Jacob. Imagine that you have uh, acquired an enormous wealth uh, in, in a dishonest manner. Then you will go by in, in, in society as a person with status. You have 200 sheep. Everybody loves you and likes you. But inside, so objectively, objectively, you are seen as a good person. But inside, you know that the source of your wealth is, is wrong, is, is immoral. So what happens one night, Jacob fights, and it depends on, the, on, on which Bible verse you use. Uh, Jacob fights with an, an angel, with the devil, with mm-hmm. God. It's not fair. But in Jungian terms, it's very simple. He is fighting with himself. And he loses. So that's the most important thing he loses. And then Israel literally means, that is the new, new name God gives to him, Yishrael, he who fought with God and lost. And so this is transcendence. This is the ego of, I have done something wrong, but I'm not able to admit it. Then he admits it. And then all the love of God, the kingdom of God opens to him. This is the real meaning of Israel. And so in that sense, the Jews did have a tradition that was uh, a light beacon in the world. But then the Zionists, of course, which are actually materialists, the whole of Zionism has been designed in in Switzerland in the 19th century, which is positivism. Always, they reduce this spiritual idea to Mm. a materialistic idea. We have to rule the world. And this is where all the misery comes from. And nobody can deny, and if you you do deny it, you're not an honest intellectual, nobody can deny that the Zionists do have a lot of power. In, in the financial world, but I refuse, and I really refuse mm-hmm. to blame the Jews uh, yeah. for 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 consp- conspiring to to con- conquer us all. That's that stupidity. Yeah, that's also why I like to tackle taboo topics, but then put it in a context that we can talk yeah. about it and we can like, clarify it for those people who would be sometimes I call it like jubilist, Jewish globalists, or whatever, to make it like a certain kind of mindset. I know other people talk about Frankie and Sabatian, whatever, whatever oh, yes. a certain kind of way of looking at it. What is their end goal then? What is the symbol then? When the temple arises again, what is for them the, the end goal when they say like, yes, now we rule the world? Is there kind of stage or something that has to happen for them to find like we reached now what we wanted? Yes. You know, they have a tradition of 3000 years commenting on the Torah and they call it the oral Torah, uh, which is the Talmud actually. And, um, you know, at, at a certain 
point, there is a passage where, where the rabbis actually say, well, uh, God has given us the verses. Now we have interpreted them. And no, now we no longer need God. Now we have our own interpretation. So this is a kind of psychosis. And so there are two things that uh, correspond in this psychosis. They want to rebuild the third temple. As you know, uh, the two temples before have been, have been lost. But that's a, that is the literal temple. And they really want to build it. And I think they will through some false flag. Uh, ISIS will attack the dome or will, will launch a, a rocket and pa. By coincidence, the, the dome of the rock will be destroyed. By coincidence, you know, uh, you know how these things go with secret societies. But that's not the most, most important thing. That is only the symbol. The true temple system is what was prevalent in Jesus' time. That is what they want back again. Total power. You only have total power when people love to be slaves. People want to be slaves. That is what they're really after. Because if people actually want to be slaves, well, then you don't even have to control them. Then, and I see that with a lot of people. They want to, you know, they, 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 what we said before this, this conversation, they need like this leader that will uh, take them to the promised land, but he will take them to hell. I can tell you that. That is their end goal. And of course, I think uh, greater Israel is, is not a fiction. It is something they really want they, because they follow very strictly the Torah. And in the Torah, it says the promised land goes from the uh, Euphrates to the Nile. So the whole destabilization in the Middle East serves only one purpose. That is to prepare the ground for later annexation. And we see it in everything. We see it in the Holan Heights, Golan Heights. We see also the, the animosity with Iran uh, serve this purpose because you cannot have a big country and then a big enemy country next to it. We have to destroy Iran so that we have a buffer of, you know, states without a spine, let's say, which, which all states have done. That is the end goal. That is, for me, that's crystal clear. Besides this specific element, what do you think with everything that's going on with your vast knowledge about media manipulation, what are the next boiling the frog steps or what kind of society model would they would love to have humanity step into, you think? They want a society of uh, full-spectrum dominance. That is a concept that has been launched by Zygmunt Brzezinski. He has a name that is hardly, <laughs> hardly pronounceable, but he was one of the ultra, ultra, ultra Zionists that has influenced a lot of um, uh, policy lines. And so the technocracy that we are seeing is designed for that. Uh, we have in China, we have already systems in place with a social credit score, which actually means that if you go too close to a dissident, your own credit score goes down. Uh, it's, it's a game. Uh, it's, uh, you don't live anymore. You are being lived. That is what they want. And, and that is where we are going to. And boiling the frog is a very good idiom. It's a very good uh, analogy because, you know, uh, I remember saying, well, this, this mouth glove, I'm never going to wear it. Well, now I do <laughs> because, you know, everybody does it. And I could be the rebel not doing it, but it will cause me so much trouble that I, I prefer not doing it. But what is the next step? Well, I will not take the vaccine. Well, until there is a vaccine passport, of course, and you know you will not even be able to go to the gym without without one. So what do you do? Well, it's just a jab. You, you take it. And then what would be the next step? Well, there are variants on this virus. There are mutations. So every half year, we will need to have the jab. That's the next step. And so... You know, there is a slippery slope. Like modernists say, slippery slope arguments are logical fallacies. No, 
that is a logical fallacy. Slippery slopes exist, you know? And there is a point where you have to say, are we still sovereign? We aren't. First, you have to acknowledge that we aren't. And what are we going to do about it? And we have to, we just have to stop. My answer is we don't have to do anything about it. We have to stop doing something about it. We have to stop paying taxes. That is my, <laughs> that is my solution. With the boiling the frog and increasingly like the mask and the distancing and the track and trace and, you know, maybe in the end, like microchip, is there no role for active rebellion? Protest? No. I will tell you why, because you have to understand that people live in a psychosis. And so they live in duality. And so any action that provokes duality fortifies the system. So many people don't want riots or don't want, you know, even, even manifestations because there is always this, this grim, grim idea about it. But if and you're not going to pay taxes, I think you will have a yeah. knock at the door of the Guardia Civil where you live in Madrid and there will be some rebellion maybe in your house. Well, this is the Christian attitude. What we will have to do is suffer. And it is the suffering of a person that can touch another person. And the reason that, that so many people became Christian after Christ had done what he had done, they, they crucified him for what? He never did any rebellion, nothing. Maybe that passage in the temple, but that was not the essence anymore. He helped people, actually. He helped people liberate themselves, also on a biological level, on a medical level. And, you know, once the system feels that it is losing power, it crushes down on those individuals. So Jefferson has said, from time to time, the tree of liberty has to be replenished by the blood of tyrants and patriots. So what we actually need is people who are willing to suffer symbolically, not by rebellion, just saying, I'm not participating in this anymore, and they will be, they will be cracked down. And, and this is where true aristocracy comes from. You know, This is what, what, what the function of a king is. He is stronger than the rest. He can suffer more. And because he has suffered more, People understand that he is willing to do anything for them. So being a king is not being free. No, it's noblesse oblige. So what we have now is bourgeoisie pretending to be leaders who are in parliament. And they are not even millionaires. You know, if they lose their, their, their seat, they go back to, to filling racks at, at the grocery store. Which, nothing wrong with that, but you see, the, you see the difference. No, and this is their motivation, a negative motivation. Aristocracy has a positive motivation. I'm going to die anyway. And what people fear most is to die meaningless. And if your death is meaningful, well, then you have lived a full life. Do you think, think like the passion of Christ, that is like the passion of the individual that chooses to suffer and that that will maybe create some compassion? Yes. With other people? Perfect. That's, that's essentially, that is what I'm saying. Yes. What I'm really curious about is your religious experience. Was it something sudden or what made you change your religious view of someone who was focused on economics, politics, to becoming closer yeah. to God? Oh, I remember it was a sudden moment. I remember it was the 20, 28th of, of August, 2013. And it was a year in which everything went wrong. I was doing a master's degree in Austrian economics in 2011, 2012. And after that, I wanted to start my own my own business, but, and I was translating a book and, and that didn't work either. 
my relationship had gone wrong. My father got cancer. My brother divorced. And it was like my whole stability that everything that I knew was gone. I was disoriented. And I worked too much because if you don't focus, you work on too much. So I didn't sleep anymore. And, you know, I crashed. I just crashed. And then I went to the, because in the end, you don't, you become insomniac and you, you go to bed, you don't sleep and you get up in the morning tired. I've been through all that. It was a burnout, basically. And then one day, and I, it's so hard to describe because it is transcendental, of course. It's not that I like felt the presence, but it's like the feeling of being immersed in everything. It's like feeling one with everything. And then later on, I read of other experiences, of course. And, you know, I have to say that my, my conviction is Christian, but I do believe that God is, an infin- is, 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 a, is a synonym of infinity. It's not some man in the sky with, with a beard. That is a persona that is one of the three parts of the Trinity. And I do respect the Father, but the, the, the Zeus, let's say, the, the, the upper God, is, is just infinity. And this is what you find in, in, in the ancient Greeks also. So what did, what did, is what, what did God gave you or allowed you to do? To love myself, which is the most important thing in life. Because beforehand, I was trying to gather status because, you know, wanting to be the president of, of the Republic of Flanders is no small feat, you know. <laughs> it was a mixture, you know. I saw that where there was injustice and I saw that the Flemings, you know, were living in a country that did not respect them. So that was, it's always a mixture. That was legitimate. But then, of course, there's a lot of ego and that ego uses this legitimate uh, struggle to nourish itself. You know, and I was, I have videos of myself. If I look back at them, <laughs> I'm ashamed, but that is who I was back then. And so what God allowed me to do, what myself allowed me to do is to just to live out my talents without ever questioning, will people like me? Mm-hmm. Will they like me opinion or not? Will they follow me? And you know what the irony is? Since I started doing that, people are following me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's the beauty. I'm fascinated by that because I'm just, you know, I come from a small village next to the French border, which is called Dranuter, and it has 729 inhabitants. So who am I? Mm-hmm. But people follow me. And I, I think it's a great honor. Yeah, you said Flemings, and I think the fl- uh, Flemings turned into lemmings. <laughs> well, they, they cut out the F, which is the, the fire of passion for life. You know, uh, I, I go to Ghent, for instance, and then I see the Belfort. You know, do you think that this has been constructed by, uh, you know, uh, by politically correct, uh, general neutral? Yeah, it seems that people don't respect their heritage anymore or the values like of, of, of philosophy, of history, of religion. All these beautiful things we created to have an underlying element, an underlying belief and way of thinking, but we just take it for granted and it seems to conflict and suffering that then maybe it will emerge again do, do you believe in a kind of hegelian dialectic a kind of pendulum yes. swing that it's going to swing I back am, at some I'm point convinced i am convinced and it has already started if you become more conscious then you have like this dunning kruger effect not for intelligence but from for consciousness like this thing that everybody is becoming more conscious and that is not true you change your relationships and the circle of people around you are also more conscious but the the circles you were in are staying where they are. But it's not important because 
we still believe in the modern perversion of democracy. We still believe that we need 51% of the votes, the intellectual votes then, to change things. And that is not true. What you need is the majority of a minority. And I believe in uh, the, the Pareto difference between 80% masses and 20% elites. And so if you can change something within that elite, I do not believe in the masses. I believe in the elites, but true elites, not the elites we have now. If you can manage to get 11%, so the majority of the minority, behind your cause, and what is the cause? The cause is to be aristocratic, to stand up for, for the rest of the people, not to have, uh, now I'm a millionaire, I have my, uh, my house and my car and my wife. Is that where it ends? No, that's where it begins. Now you are in the position to transcend all of that. And that is what I firmly believe in. Yeah, and this is also sometimes a bit of a tug of war in me to choose my position because on one hand, you can't control this process. On the other hand, you want to have your own circle of influence to try to do something and stand for something. So it's finding a middle ground because I sometimes find some people who are complacent and say, I'm only going to focus on what I can control and what happens will happen. But if it goes so far towards your personal sovereignty and your own personal freedom, you're going to get affected, even if you try to ignore it and say, like, I only focus on what's under my control and influence. Yeah. Yeah, th this is a struggle everybody has, I, I guess. And then, you know, imagine being a father with three children and having mm -hmm. to support a family. Those people are even less free than, than we are to pursue, you know, to go to war, let's say, you know, because that is what it is. It is a, a spiritual war. So I, I, do, I do, I understand that. But I think that, you know, the only thing we really have to do is to testify about the truth. Because if you do that, you know, it, it's incredible how much influence an opinion has by somebody who actually believes in his opinion. Mm -hmm. for, for, yeah. for better or for worse. You know, and, and when, I, when I talk about the 20%, I haven't talked about 80%. What are 80% of the people? 80% of the people think that they are original, which is the most banal thought there is. They aren't. They are followers. And there's nothing wrong with that. And I don't look down on that, but they are followers. So they will follow anything that gives structure to their life. And slavery gives a lot of structure, you know, in between the chaos of liberty, because liberty is chaos, and not, not everybody can deal with chaos. They want logos. Or uh, we are going to give it to them. We are going to form a new elite. And I'm not even ashamed to say that. Or we are going to leave it to, leave it to the Mark Rutte's and Alexander de Croos of, of this world, who have absolutely no leadership. If they give a press conference, it's with a little ear. The spin doctors are behind them to say what, mm -hmm. what they need to say. And this is uh, designed by an algorithm that has analyzed the social media for the themes that are, at that point, important for people. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just, it's the matrix. Yeah, <laughs> I, I completely agree with you that at least according to me, democracy and majority rule, or yeah, don't get me started about Belgium. It's like, you know, whatever, but don't get into this topic. But it's mob rule. And it's it mob rule based on a decision that they've been fed through the cultural institutions. So it's like, yes. we're going to feed you propaganda, but now it's like, now we're going to let the people decide based on all the perception manipulation and what's being fed by propaganda. And then you act like, oh, this is democracy. This is just false democracy. This is a lot of misinformed people. You don't have to agree with what I say, but you, you've seen a narrow bandwidth of 
acceptable yeah. and debatable opinion. And then you base your opinion based on that. So that is what we increasingly see, right? Yeah, that, that's actually, I think it's Noam Chomsky who wrote a book about that manufacturing of consent. Mm-hmm. So people have the idea that they choose freely, but if you don't know all the options, how can you choose? And so, and so one option I want to highlight here is, is that we go back to the original meaning of democracy. So now what we do, you know, it's a bit of interpretation. I, I equate democracy with ostracism. So in the, in the Greek polis, when somebody was ruling and he was, you know, becoming a tyrant or, or just, uh, you know, using public money for his personal gain, well, you, you, you destroyed a recipient of, of, of wine. How do you call that? <laughs> Uh, and uh, on on the shelves, you 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 yeah. you inscribe the name, and if his name came came too much you cast to the front, him out, right? You cast him out. That is democracy. The power it's a negative power. The power to oust a politician, and if you are ousted as a politician, you will never ever get in a position again. And even if if corporates and the corporates will not give you a job anymore because they know that you will not get back to politics. So that's the reason why when when politicians fail. They go to the corporate world for 10 years and then they come back. No problem because the masses have forgotten. What is the true meaning of, of democracy? That the, the ability to, to oust the politician and he can never come back. And now that is a negative power. And now what we do, we vote for politicians. <laughs> we vote for who is going to rob us for the next five years. That is just perverse modernism that's crazy so well just we're from belgium just to show you what it's like like there's a party in belgium and they call the party extreme right just because they're critical towards immigration every party is critical towards immigration is extreme right and then they call that party anti-democratic but they hold them out of the government which i think is like anti-democratic and you said voting for politicians but they more vote for a party. And then the party decides who gets selected. And we're even in a position that some of the, well, one of the ministers in Belgium actually was not on the election list. Oh, <laughs> and, that's- we, and we live in Flanders and Belgium, where when we got the ro- world record of being without a federal government, even worse than Iraq, we celebrated it. We celebrated of, you know, like the whole chaos, typical Belgian, I think. The absurdity of the Belgian system has uh, been uh, integrated into the psyche of the Flemings. And, and that is what, what, what my talk was about. It's like five years ago, the psychostructure of the Flemings. It's, it's in Dutch. I think it has been subtitled. Maybe we can link to it in the, subscri- in the, in the, in the description. But it's a dialectical relation. You know, If, if the masses are, are ill, because it's a psychological illness to, to accept that you are being beaten every day and to, to like that, because they actually like that. Because I think it was Hannah Arendt who, who wrote in, in her book at a certain point, the masses no longer uh, criticize the government, but they applaud them for the, the intelligence they use in their manipulations. They, they become like the spectator of, wow, they fooled the masses again, and everybody thinks that, and they actually um, admire it's the same thing that you see in a fraternity where you have to do humiliating things to get access. And then they backwards rationalize it. It was totally worth it. It was totally worth it. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're unique now. And this totally makes sense. Because if they would have to admit I did something that humiliated me, that wasn't right, you know, I felt betrayed. Just having that self-consciousness and reflection about yourself, that can be very confronting. So you have oh. to like backwards rationalize it to make sense of it. Yeah, I, I think it was Jung who said that people would rather follow an external dictator than to have to face their own shadow. 
And, and I have been obliged by circumstances to face my own shadow. And below the shadow, you find the archetypes. And below the archetypes, you find God. So the kingdom of God is within. And, and I can. one thing I would like to say to your viewers is that don't run away from negativity. Go into it. You know, we, know, we all know that there, that there are enormous scandals with pedophiles, you know, in, in government. And nobody really wants to dig into that because it's too negative. Mm -hmm. No, go into the negativity because one of the reasons that we are still in this mindset is because we think that negativity is something bad, that it has to be shut out. But if you are really honest, some of the worst crimes in the history of humanity have been committed by people who thought that they were doing good. So as long as you do not know your shadow, it's highly likely, highly likely that you are doing things that are not good. And that is the only way I think we are going to get out of this. There, there is no economic solution. There is no political solution. I think there's only a spiritual solution that is going inside. That's one of the last questions I want to end with is when we have a meaning crisis, when we have a fulfillment crisis, and this postmodernism sometimes eats itself or is anti-something and anti-racism and anti-certain identities, where do we draw our meaning from? Where do we build our values from? How can we build ourselves up again instead of that existential empty void inside that oftentimes is projected onto the chaos outside or the state that has to take care of that inner emptiness? Yeah, you can only do that, Philip, by doing what Joseph Campbell has written in his book, The, the Hero's Journey. You really have to face your fears and very often we project our fears and then, then we think it's a societal thing. No, it comes from in here. Because I, I honestly have to say, I am blessed. I do not fear anything anymore. I don't fear death. I don't fear becoming ill because recently I discovered what illness is, but that is another subject. Mm -hmm. And if you do that, you will find meaning. You will find, but what, what people don't want is meaning. They want security. But insecurity, there is no meaning. These are two mutual exclusive concepts. If you have security, it becomes meaningless. And if you look for meaning, you will have to leave your comfort zone. You, you will have to see stuff and read about stuff that you really don't like because, you know, you feel emotional distress by doing that. But, but this is the dragon. You know, when Lancelot goes to fight the dragon, it's just the same like Jacob who loses against God. Lancelot. Uh, loses against the dragon. The dragon eats him up. So that is the self trying to embrace the ego. And so the moment you are in the belly of the of the of the dragon, it's dark. It's like the the the, the long night. How is this called again? The long night of um, of darkness. Let's say the dark night of the soul. It's yeah, called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you take your sword and you rip open the belly, and you you are reborn. This is the you know, every culture, every anthropology has stories like this, this of rebirth. And this is the death of the ego to be reborn. And that is when, when you will find meaning. You know, I will need three lives to, to do everything I wanted to do that is meaningful for me. Yeah, that's the belly of the whale. That's also a bit what Corona is when it covers the sun, but then, then it moves away again and then the sun starts shining, you know. Yeah. So we have to go through that and not believe in... It's like the Matrix, you know. Uh, one of my favorite uh, favorite uh, anti-heroes there is, um, is Cypher. This mm -hmm. is the, um, the guy who says, you know, 
I don't want to know what this struggle is about. Just put me back in the matrix mm -hmm. and make sure I have this juicy steak every day. Yeah. And most people are like that. I, it's possible that you're right, but they just don't want to know. But I'll tell you something. The marginal utility of that steak, if you have a steak every single day, it will become hollow. You will never want a steak again. So with every material thing in life, it's like that. And then the question will come back, what am I doing here? And then you will, will want to get out of the matrix. And it's, it's a process you cannot force anybody. You have to leave them, but always testify about the truth. Never be afraid because you would be amazed what influence this has. Somebody who says, no, I do not longer believe in this because this and that and that. And they might call you a fool or whatever, but testify. Yeah, and also a, a sovereign individual who is well, willing to embrace their shadows and then be a full human being and be able to withstand whatever that society throws at them. Because, you know, if you're without power in yourself or without your whole self, you will inspire. I don't know where the word inspire comes from or like enthusiasm or yeah. God spirit or whatever. You will be able, just by your being, you will be able to influence a lot more people than coming from that empty resentment place. And everybody has, I also have my addictions and, and burnout oh. and workaholicism and these honest conversation with myself. Like that's for me is a bit what God's voice is that deeper inner knowing when I have conversations with that, that it knows answers, but I know it in the background, it whispers, but I fill it up with doing and avoiding. This is a voice. Yeah. And, and I want to, you know, I, I have to choose to create some pause and space and silence to deal with that and then commit to it. And it feels a bit dirty and shameful and guilty because I know better and I want to work with it. But once you really pay attention to it and not be able to cast it away, but integrate it, you will be a whole more better human being that maybe doesn't need that security, but has the biggest security, which means you can deal with insecurity. Yeah. Yeah, and also don't don't um, punish yourself for not evolving uh, rapidly enough, because as an economist, I can tell you that consciousness is also has also to do with with marginal utility. So you know that what you are doing is not right, but you keep doing it. But you will not keep doing it because the added value of doing it another time drops until it drops under the cost of doing it. <laughs> because everything that is wrong has a pleasure at the short term, but also has a cost in the longer term. And you will notice, suddenly, it's like people who stop smoking. Suddenly, I don't want to smoke anymore because the marginal utility has dropped. So there's a difference between the intellectual knowing, like, I cannot do this anymore, and emotionally really saying, I've, I've had it. So yes, it's it, a beautiful journey. I think, I, think, I think Daniel Kahneman also talks about it, about, you know, the short-term thinking, the long-term thinking, and these two voices. But if you have so much repetitions that something is not working for you and you always feel like bad afterwards, at a certain point, everybody will have this. That's like, you know, this is not working. I got to stop doing this. And everybody has a point on their journey that they reach it. It's the same thing what you said with being awake and stay in bed. They hit the snooze button, they get a wake-up call, they hit the snooze button. But everybody has a certain point, like, I'm going to get out of bed and work on this and become a new, a new person. Yeah, but it's not a decision. That's, that's the key point. It's, it's, it's a moment that, that you say, well, huh, it doesn't influence me anymore. And, you know, to give you one small testimony, one of my uh, sins, my greatest sins before this was, except from pride, of course, this is a sin that we all struggle with. but 
the master sin also, but um, ira, so uh, uh, anger. Mm. And I, I got angry at, at people. And, you know, then you do a lot of damage. And then you have to repair that damage if you still want to keep the relationship. And then after a while, you see, you know, uh, the repairing of this damage is costs me more than the, you know, than the value between brackets of being able to say, Rah! you know, <laughs> and you, you know that intellectually until some moment in the back of your mind. So that second Kahneman uh, mind, let's say, confirms, yes, this is true. This is, this is no longer a hypothesis. This is actually true. And then in that moment, it's not even a decision. The moment you think you decide that I'm not going to do that, you're not ready. For people who want to check out more about uh, your magazine, everything that you do, where can they check out more about all the awesome stuff you put out there? Well, the problem is that I write in Dutch. <laughs> I've, been, I've, been write, I've been thinking about writing in English uh, for a long time now, but since I'm still uh, finishing my PhD in Austrian economics, I've decided to not start new projects until, until I finish that. I don't have that much material in English, to be honest. Uh, on YouTube, you find some videos. I have a video about how to safely structure your portfolio. That might be interesting for people who, who are worried about the monetary system, which is actually the philosophy that we use in Macrotrends. And then I have a video on Christianity, which is in Dutch, but subtitled. Uh, maybe we should look at some videos. I'll, that I'll, yeah, I will drop it in yeah. the comments so people can check it out. If you want to end with something practical, something constructive, that with all your knowledge about religion and about economics and about the financial reset, what should people focus on and how would you advise them to structure their financial portfolio to prepare for what's coming? Well, that's, that's not really a question to, to finish with because it's, it's, it's a long explanation, but one, one central point would, of course, be precious metals. If you don't own gold, what you own is counterparty risk, basically. So your, your bank account is nothing but a, a convention. And we all know that the elite does not honor its conventions. It, it changes conventions when it wants to. That is actually what inflation is. The convention is that this is the value of money. No, we're going to add money so that every monetary unit is valued less. So. My advice would be pay off your debt. That is the most important thing. You cannot call yourself a capitalist or a, an investor or whatever if you have debt. Very important. Two, make sure that more money enters than money goes out. Seems very simple, but it isn't. For a lot of people, it isn't. And three, whatever savings you have, start with precious metals. And if, and if you have a good base in precious metals, then you can start thinking about stocks. And then by then, maybe I will have uh, my macro trends uh, in English. And you're also an advocate of protecting your assets, right? It's not just about making a profit. It's about, you know, making sure you protect what you have. Yeah, that's, that's the whole rule uh, about gold. I always say to my subscribers, it's not an investment. It's an insurance. Because, uh, you know, if gold goes to 10,000 10, euros, for instance, the moment that happens, the, the real problem is that the euro will not be worth anything. So what is, what is that 10,000, that, that label worth? Nothing. It's, it will be the barter value of gold at that moment. So gold, you have to see it in this phase of the cycle. You know, in other phases of the cycle, it can be seen as an investment. But at, at this phase of the cycle, it's an insurance against the, 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 the failing of the monetary system. And it will fail. It's just a matter of time. It's, it's a mathematical impossibility to repay the debt. Impossible. So we will have a hyperinflation like we had, have had in, in Weimar, Germany in, in, in 23. This is coming back. So people should... Pay off debt, 
ensure that there is more money coming in than going out and buy precious metals. Should that they would be still have fine. money on the bank account and if it's going to crash? Yeah, well, we have to pay our, our, our bills. So for that reason, you should have money in the bank account. But uh, to, for savings, why? <laughs> what is the bank giving you? Interest is a payment for risk. That is how I see it. And so if the interests are negative, that would mean that there is a negative risk. So that would mean that they are more certain than uncertainty. So this is just impossible. The interest rates should be at least double digits. They should be at least 11, 12, 13%, and they are at negative territory. So if you see that, this is a gigantic opportunity to, to, to be rich. And you first have to be rich here. Uh, but, you know, we all want some, you know, some, uh, some material stuff, you know. Uh, we are not uh, saints. Well, I want to thank you for taking the positive risk of facing your shadows, going through the hero's journey, and also showing it's not just about economics and financial assets. It's also about religious assets, psychological assets, and working on your own sovereignty and working with your shadows. So thanks for sharing your perspectives and being a guest on the podcast, Brecht. My pleasure. If you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe, share, and leave a comment. And if you're a coach or consultant and you want to scale your online business or maximize your productivity, check out the show notes to find out more about Philip and his coaching programs. Rent over.